How you guys doing? Good. Good. I, don't, I think I, I want to be over by the youth. No, that's cool. We'll stay right. Is this all right? Can I come down here? That can invade your space or? How you guys doing? It's good to be here. Man, I've had a day with your pastor. What a great pastor you have. I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. You know, every so often, it's not often, but every so often, I hang out with a pastor during the day before I speak at night, and just once in a while, I think, how do these people put up with this guy? You know what I mean? Just, I mean, don't, don't tell anybody that I think that, but I go, wow. But today I was thinking, man, these, these people have got a pastor. I mean, really, they've got a pastor. Coming into the city, you know, and he's talking about how things look, and we drive by one of those, you know, nasty places that are out on the outskirts of you know, all cities kind of thing, and he'd just start cursing it, you know, and just cared about this. It's great. It's great. Hey, can I, uh, can I ask you a favor? Can we get back past the guest speaker thing? You know what I'm talking about. I tell jokes, and I pull a rabbit out of my hat, you know, and do tricks and stuff like that, and you guys hold up signs like 9.1, 8.6, you know, like they do at the Olympics. Come on. Can we just cut to the chase? Is that okay? Because I pastored in, t- in Abilene for 10 years. So, you know, I, you, just, you just need to be nice to me and take me in as family, okay? I'm an orphan, so take me in, all right? Come on. I got to say a couple thing, other things, too. I, I apologize to you, but I talk fast like a Yankee on drugs. And uh, you Yankee? And so, I, you know, I, I used, when I pastored here, I used to wish that some of my Abilinians had a fast-forward button on there, because y'all know what I, you know, what I would just, so you, I understand, have the opposite problem, that I will talk fast, and if you don't think I'm talking fast now, then uh, wait till I get revved up. By the way, I don't understand, are you guys paying Rich anything? I mean, you pay him anything, because do you feed him at home at all? He was on the stage five minutes, mentioned food five times. I don't understand how that can work. Lord, have mercy, Donna. Please help this man out. Lord. I want to talk to you all this evening, just real heart to heart, a little bit more like a coach than a preacher, if that's okay. If you guys want to move around that pole and come sit up here, it won't bother me at all, because I can tell we're kind of doing this already. That's all right. That's all right. You've got to hold the ceiling up, for heaven's sakes. That's fine. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit more about a coach, and I want to talk to you about Abilene. Is that all right? Can I talk to you about Abilene? Because I love Abilene. But when I first moved to Abilene in 1981, 30 years ago this year, I was the dumbest pastor in the history of the world. You don't know whether to laugh, do you? I was the stupidest pastor in the history of the world. Let me tell you a little bit about my background. We'll get to the word in a minute. I haven't forgotten what I'm doing. But I want to tell you a little bit about this so you understand how I came to what I'm going to be sharing tonight. I had been raised uh, in, a, in a military home. My father was a Green Beret, you know, kind of tough, snake eater kind of guy. And, uh, so I, and I'd been raised mainly in Europe, in big cities in Germany. As a matter of fact, I spent almost my whole high school career in Berlin, Germany, which behind the Iron Curtain at that time, and, you know, big, big thing, millions of people. And I came back to the States and played football and uh, would have played for Iowa, but I became a Christian and went to a Christian school. And as soon as I graduated from that Christian school, I came to Abilene. Now, Berlin, Germany, Abilene, okay? That's, and I was feeling that. The first day I came, a tumbleweed hit me in the face. That's true. The second day I was here, 
Some old grizzled cowboy guy walked up to me at a restaurant and said, you know what a Texan really is afraid of? A Yankee pulling a trailer. That was the second day. And the third day I was here, and I still don't have this straight in my head. What is it? Somebody invited me for uh, dinner, and I showed up. Now, I got this right at 6 in the evening. But that's supper, is that right? I mean, I, I realize more Yankees here now, and so probably we got that whole time thing straightened out. But I showed up at 6 for what should have been lunch or the other way around. So this was three days. Then by the fourth day, I wanted to open a vein. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to kill myself because I didn't know what was going on. And uh, I, I, uh, I made huge mistakes. I mean, I don't mean moral things. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But I made mistakes like, you know, I got here and I would go around. And I, you know, I, 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 I never, I'd never seen anything like Abilene. I mean, I mean, it wasn't bad. You understand what I'm saying? But it's just... It's just different from what I'd known. I'd lived always in big cities, right? And, you know, so, you know, I, I, for the third day there, I drove around Abilene looking for Abilene. You know what I'm saying? I was looking for the rest of it. And, um, and I just couldn't get it in my head, you know, this is it, you know? And um, so I, so I, I, I kind of had to do an adjustment, you know, and I should have come out before and everything. And, and so I, I came out and I, I just, you know, I, I, tr- I tried to love it, but... And then I, I have another problem, too, in that I, I tend to talk about whatever I'm thinking, which is not a good thing to do. And uh, so I'd get up in front of the church. I was pastoring a church that used to be called Word of Emmanuel, and now it's Fountain Gate. still here, I think. That was, this is back in the dark ages. This is just shortly after Jesus came out of the tomb. And um, so I'd get up, and I thought I was being funny and trying to be relational, and I'd talk about how Abilene is a little strange to me. And, of course, everybody in the room, like born and bred in Abilene, you know, and they're thinking, well, you could just go home. You know, they're looking at me like, you know, here I am trying to love them in Jesus' name, you know, and telling them that their city stinks. And so, so I just, I did not get it. And then what happened was, you know, I went to a school and a lot of my friends became kind of well-known pretty quickly and pastored big churches or ran for office or whatever. And here I am in Abilene, you know, because I was such an absolutely stinking pastor. I had like, you know, four committed people after about 10 years. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just, of course, you're not going to grow a church if you don't love the people and love the city, right? So, you know, I started getting angry. I started getting mad. I'd pray walking around moving like this, and some of the chairs would go flying, you know, because I'd be mad. Lord, either, you know, use me or get me out of here. And, oh, man, it was, it was ugly. And the people could feel it, you know, because I was actually buying books of jokes about Texas and Abilene. That wasn't good either. And then I'd make jokes about the cowboys. I almost got mugged one night and after church, you know what I'm saying? It just, it just I did every stupid thing I, i'm told to roger style back joke i thought that you know i was like i could have denied christ you know what i'm saying and not offended people that much i did everything wrong all right now i will tell you that in midland i told a romo joke until he pulled it out i, I was actually telling the joke while he was back in so now he's a hero now i look like an idiot in midland anyway i have not learned my lessons so what happened though was about six or seven years into my 10 years the Lord allowed me kind of like an exhausted child. You know, you know, a child gets wound up at night. The parents go, just let him run. And the kid just runs and finally, just, you know, just falls out on the couch, you know, and just like a puppy on his back. And dad picks him up, takes him to bed. And they're just thankful that he finally ran down. I finally ran down all my attitude and all my emotions and all my stuff. And, um, and, and the Lord finally could get me quiet enough to talk to me. And what he basically said was, uh, are you here or not? Now, at first I didn't understand that because, you know, 
again, being a Yankee, having a lot of attitude, I was raised by Jews a little bit. If you need to know about Jewish community, you know, it's very verbal, it's very attitude, it's very sarcastic. You know, that's kind of, unfortunately, the injection I got. And, uh, and so I said, am I here? I've been here for six years. Do you know how many chicken fried steaks I have eaten in six years? You know, and uh, so I started giving him lip, and then that delayed the conversation a bit. And then finally, it came down to this. Are you going to declare yourself for my purposes or not? I mean, I could feel like the whole issue of my lifetime destiny was in the, in the balance. You know, like, like God was saying, I sent you here, and you haven't really owned what I sent you here to do in the first place. And that's why nothing's happening. I mean, you're just a lightweight in this city. And um, I'll tell you a little bit more about what happened later. But basically, emotionally and spiritually, I unpacked my bags. I closed my skate patch. I mean, I can tell you some funny stories. I actually applied to the CIA while I was pastoring here in Nashville. I mean, Abilene. I'm not kidding. I applied to the CIA. I thought, you know, spying for the U.S. government would be better than having to do the kind of pastoring I was doing. Don't laugh, Rich. It's coming. And so, you know, you follow what I mean? I mean, unbelievable. Then I went to Dallas to take the exam to be a CIA spy, and I was on the wrong week. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that happened all the time. All the time. So I could just tell you all kinds of stories, but here's what happened. I, I, I really, God really dealt with me. I'll tell you a little bit more about, about it later. And I unpacked my bag and closed my escape hatch and stopped trying to leave and stopped trying to live here with one foot out the door. You guys know what I'm talking about. You know, you're kind of here and kind of not. And, you know, and, uh, and I said, look, I'm here. I'm here until you release me. And I'm not going to try to go anywhere. And I mean, I did that in tears. That was not easy because I had all kinds of, you know, I'm sure vain ambitions and, you know, dreams and what have you. And, you know, really, it should have been me president and not, you know, Bush. But anyway, that's another story. And so um, I'm just teasing. So when that happened and I planted myself and said, I'm here for your purposes, things changed. Things changed. And the anointing increased on my life and the number of people we led to the Lord began to change and the church began to grow. And in the 80s, which was not an easy time in, in Abilene to, to, ha- to be pastor in a church. And I mean, most of you weren't even born. You have no sympathy for me whatsoever, but that's fine. Um, the church got up to about 250, I think it was, which was, you know, I think it was the largest charismatic thing happening at the time, largest spiritual work at the time. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But the main, the main thing is things began to happen. And with, within three years, another pastor came along who spoke Texan and could actually... Um, <laughs> was actually going to be a better pastor than I was, and I left, and I went to Nashville, and it was, it was awesome. But until I, and here's, how I, here's what I think happened, until I declared myself for God's purposes, and then I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the city. I, I uh, went over to the library, and I started reading books on Abilene history, and just fell in love with it, loved it. I mean, I knew it had problems, you know, and, and I'm, I, you guys can't tell. I might tell you a little bit more about this later, but I'm three-quarter Native American, and Abilinians haven't always been happy with Native Americans, if you understand what I'm saying. So there are a couple of stories. And I told, some of, I told the mayor at the time, you owe me some land. But, uh, but that was a, he, he didn't do anything about that. But, um, but, the, but the main thing is that uh, when I fell in love with the city and f- found God's heart for the city, that's when things started happening. And so if you'll allow me, I would like to, and I'm, and I'm not here to try to say, well, I did it wrong. Let me tell you how to do it right. That's not what I'm doing. But I'd like to teach you from the word just a little bit. Some of the things the Lord brought me to that changed the way that I understood Abilene 
and more, maybe even beyond that, changed the way that I understood how you do not have authority for a place or the grace to change it until you have declared yourself for God's purposes in that place. Now, I'm looking at, I love talking to, to folks of this age over here to my left, and, and they're not going to be in this town forever, all of them. Some of them might, you know, in 100 years be here. Um, but they're going to go to other countries. They're gonna, you guys are going to go to college and who knows, go to the nations and what have you. And wherever you are, I mean, this is even true of things like college and business. If God's put you there, you have got to plant yourself and declare yourself for God's purposes and turn your soul towards what God's trying to do. So, so with that little introduction, I feel like the best thing I can do is begin this, this talk with my confession of sin. You're looking at, the, at least in, the, in my 10 years in Abilene, the worst pastor on the planet, okay? Now, don't get nervous. I went on and pastored a church that was five or 6,000 in Nashville and, and, um, and still messed it up, no. But, I mean, I, I, st- I had a great time, uh, and it, it was good. But, man, the Abilene years were horrible, and I didn't have the impact I should have had because I didn't know who I was in God's purpose. Turn in your Bible, if you will, please, to Isaiah 3. Now, I'm just talking to you like family tonight. So don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do cartwheels and yell and scream. But in Isaiah chapter 3, now I use the New International Version of the Bible. And if you're using some communist version, that is fine. That is absolutely fine. You just go right ahead. It won't bother me in the least. But I'm using God's version of the Bible. Now, the, the, the text I'm going to read to you, the little passage I'm going to read to you, is actually kind of a bummer. God's ticked off at uh, Jerusalem and Judah. And so here's what Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food, all supplies of water, the hero and warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of 50, uh, 50 and man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, the clever enchanter, etc., etc. See, God's ticked off at them, so he's taking their leadership away from them. And he says, I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. People will oppress each other. And it just goes on and on and on. But there's one word that I want to focus on here that we don't talk about very much in the Bible, but it's, but it's a powerful word, and I want to build on it tonight. And it's the word in verse 2, hero. Hero. Now, I came into every nation at a time of real crisis in my life, and the Lord really used every nation to change my life. And I know that it's kind of a buzzword in every nation to say, hey, hero, or talk to people, and I love that. I love building people up with words. But I want to drill down a little bit more than that into what the word actually means in the original language. I love reading Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff and understanding the scriptures in their original language because the word hero is very powerful. It's actually the word that we translate from, to, into hero is actually used about 137 times in the Bible. Sometimes it's translated mighty man. Sometimes it's translated mighty warrior. Sometimes it's tra- translated great man. You can see all the variations. But sometimes based on the context, on the sentence that it's in, it ought to be translated hero. So let me, tell, let me give you a couple of definitions of how, it ought to be, how it's used in the Bible. And then let me give you a couple of illustrations, and then I'll go from there. In the Bible, the word hero does not mean what we mean by hero today. 
You know, Hero was out of fashion back in the 60s, and then in, in the 80s, Ronald Reagan would point at somebody in a gallery while he was making a speech and say, that's an American hero, and the word kind of came back into fashion. And then, you know, on 9-11, we called heroes the guys who went up in the buildings and so on. Thank God, they absolutely were. Um, if you ask people of this age, you know, who out there in the world who their heroes are, you know, they might say J-Lo or Usher or 50 Cent or whoever, you know, they, that they're into or... What have you? Did I hear an amen over here? I'll rebuke you. I'll come over and smack you right now. And um, no, I'm just playing. So um, my uh, anyway, I'll tell that story later. So so that that's who they would call their heroes. But in the Bible, a hero has nothing to do with somebody who's famous or talented or well known. Has nothing to do with that. Okay. It also doesn't necessarily have anything to do with military things. A hero in the Bible is somebody who breaks through a barrier so that others can fulfill their destiny. Now, that's the core definition right there. A hero is someone who rises up, breaks through a previously existing barrier, something that held people bound before, thus allowing those who come after them to arise to their best, to arise to greater heights than they would have known otherwise. That's what a hero is. You'll notice that it's in a list of other things that we might think of as, as heroic, military men and all that kind of stuff. The hero is this unique thing. And the heroic, was, the heroic was really, really important in ancient Israel because in Nehemiah 3.16, we're told that when they were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, that one of the structures they rebuilt was the house of the heroes. That's what it says in Nehemiah 3.16. So this was kind of an officer's club, training school, museum, kind of something that nurtured the heroic you know, in their community. So that's what the heroic... Let me give you two examples of the heroic, just so we're clear, because everything I'm going to say after this, and I won't go exceptionally long tonight, but everything I'm going to say after this ties into this idea of the heroic. Um, For centuries, as far as we know, nobody had run the mile in faster than four minutes. Okay? I mean, back in the day, we had, we had no records. We, have, we had records of the Olympics, and we had some, a few records of the ancient Olympics and so on. But we had no indication at all that anybody had ever run the mile faster than four minutes. Then finally, in 1954, an Oxford medical student by the name of Roger Bannister, trained in some unusual ways, did some weird things we now call plyometrics, you know, where he was hopping around the, you know, hopping around the course and all that. And he broke the four-minute mile in April of 1954. People freaked out. The sports pundits just wrote about it. The news shot around the world. And everybody started to say, all the experts started to say, can it ever be done again? Is Roger Bannister some kind of once-in-a-generation freak, you know, and, and it'll never happen again? Do you know that within three months, another man on another continent broke the four-minute mile? By the end of 1954, three men on three different continents had broken the four-minute mile. But, and I have stood on a high school practice field and watched a 17-year-old break the four-minute mile. It's not done every day, but everybody who ran close to a mile distance in the recent Olympics ran faster than a four-minute mile pace. But somebody had to do it first. Somebody had to break through, show us what was possible, change our thinking about this barrier, and immediately people began to break through. Do you see, that's the, that's the heroic principle. Now let me give you another illustration. You can't really tell because I'm up here and you're down there, but I'm quite tall. I'm almost 6'5". And how much I weigh is none of your dang business. And, um, and I, I was over 6 feet tall when I was 12. That'll give you some sense of my parents' pain. So, oh, no, no, don't be saying, oh, my gosh. I don't want to hear it. No, I'm just playing. And um, so 
when I was a little younger than that, I wasn't six feet tall, but I was tall. And I remember I was living on a military base as a child. Now, this is silly, but it's exactly what the Hebrew word means. Living on a military base as a child. And the kids said, hey, let's play tent. So we're living on a military base. Wait for it. And, uh, and they live on a military base, and they, so there's you know, canvas tarps everywhere on a military base, but they couldn't find a tent pole. So while the other kids played Army, or Ger- we used to play Germans because we were in Germany, and it was a game that the Germans weren't happy about, but that's what we called it, and, um, and, or you know, Cowboys and Indians, or whatever we were playing at 10, 11 years old, I stood under the tarp and played tent pole. So, you know, I've gone through my Oprah, Dr. Phil kind of healing moments and everything, you know, but, but, um, but that's exactly what the Hebrew word means. Watch this now, because I stood up to my full height, symbolically speaking, and lifted the canopy of the canvas, the other kids could arise to their full height. That's exactly what the Hebrew word means. That's hero. Now, here's, here's how I want to apply this. You see, my stupidity when I became a pastor, was, when I came here as a pastor, was that I assumed, I, I saw everything after the flesh, saw everything with my, with my natural eyes, and I assumed that small city meant small destiny, meant small fruit, right? Meant small calling. I mean, in other words, that somehow in my stupidity, I was thinking a town of 100,000, you know, has, has got, you know, I'm not going to do the math real quick. Let's say that New York's got 10 million people, so 100,000 to New York. New York's got a 10 million people destiny, Right? And we've got 100,000 members. I, mean, that's kind of, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have done the math. I don't think I can do it right now. But I certainly was thinking that way, that we've got this kind of destiny, and maybe New York's got this kind of destiny. Maybe Nashville's got that kind of destiny. And Dallas has got that kind of de- You know, just stupid thinking, like, the, like, like something small can't have a destiny. And uh, when the Lord began to deal with me, two things registered in my brain that really made a difference and, and began to turn me and, and, and began to show me. First of all, and I'll just quote it, you don't have to turn there, you can read it later, is Colossians 1.16. In Colossians 1.16, I mean, I remember one day I was reading the, the, the Bible, I think it was at a Chinese restaurant, because God tends to speak to me mainly over food. <laughs> right, Rich? <laughs> Either there or in the bathroom. It's one of the two almost all the time, I'm just saying. And so, you know, come on, we're family, we can talk about those things. I mean, the whole Reformation began with Martin Luther having his New Testament on his lap while he was in the bathroom and hearing the just shall live by faith. If it works for Martin Luther, it can work for me. So, so I remember reading this thing at a, at a Chinese restaurant. In fact, I know exactly where it was in the city. I was looking at Colossians 1.16, and all of a sudden I read, you know, it talks about, you know, things were created, you know, blah, 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 blah. And at the very end of the sentence in 1.16, it's talking about Jesus, talking about his glory, talking about how things are made for him. At the end it says, for all things were created for him and by him. All things were created for him and by him. Okay. And man, suddenly I realized everything has a purpose in Jesus. Everything has a purpose in Jesus. Now, I had understood that about lives, see? I had understood that about people. Because when we get some, we lead somebody to the Lord, if maybe they've been living a nasty, disgusting, sinful life, whatever, we know once they get saved, they have taken the first step towards the fulfillment of their divine destiny, right? And we believe they could be anything, right? We believe they can be president. I mean, George W. Bush, in his, in his 20s, sat at bars in Midland, Odessa, and drank himself silly. He was the drunk at the end of the bar. Now, I'm not saying he's the ideal Christian or anything else. I'm just saying there's an example of a guy who, you know, I, I, ha- I have friends 
older friends who say, we used to go into the, to the Red Lobster and see Bush down there at the end of the bar drinking whiskey, and we'd leave because we knew he was going to do something stupid and embarrassing. And, and then I was, I, you guys know I used to work for the president. I'm not trying to brag, but I used to do some things with him. And he later said, yeah, I still do things stupid and embarrassing, but at least I'm sober, you know? So <laughs> the point is that in the same way that we believe that every person has a destiny in Jesus, even if they aren't even saved, even if they don't know it. And when we, when we call them to Jesus and get them filled with the Holy Spirit and cast demons out and teach them the word and get them connected to a relationship with Jesus, what we're doing is being like midwives of destiny. God's got a destiny, a purpose for that. We're helping to give birth to the purposes of God. Well, uh, I suddenly realize cities have that same thing. Cities, all things. And by the way, in the previous part of that passage, it's just been talking about thrones and powers and earthly governments. And then it says, all things were created for him and by him. So Abilene was created for Jesus. I know, I know history. My doctorate's in history. I understand history. I understand how, you know, it was a, a railroad exchange and cattle and Indians. And I understand all that. I know, how, I know the natural side, but it's just like you're reading the Bible and you see the natural history and every so often I say, and the Lord wouldn't let that happen. And then, then human history changes. God is overseeing the human history to bring about his purposes. And God wanted Abilene, Texas right here. Even Ty has a destiny. Come on. Even Clyde has a destiny. I don't think San Angelo does, but I'm pretty sure. No, I'm just joking. Every place has got a destiny. A purpose in Jesus. And that destiny, that calling, that purpose that Jesus has established for it is simmering right under, the, right under what we can see and what's going on in the city. It's just there. And what, what we are called to do as believers wherever God sends us, whether you're pastors or not, but certainly as, as Christian leaders, is that we are called to live out that passage that's in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7. Now think about this. Jeremiah is speaking to the captives in Babylon, ancient, the ancient city of Babylon. And what does he say? He says, you're in captivity. Pray and seek the prosperity of the city in which I've placed you. And if you do, you'll prosper as well. Now they're in, they're in Babylon. They're in a pagan city, Right? You know, they're in some horrible demon-filled city like, you know, Dallas. And um, so I'm just playing. Somebody from Dallas is going to meet me in the parking lot. And so what we're called to do is to try to give birth through prayer and intercession and ministry and crying out to God and worshiping and breaking strongholds and living righteous lives and calling people to Jesus and, and building great churches and institutions and influencing things for righteousness. We're called to try to help give birth to the extent that we can in our time where we have an influence to the purposes of God for the city. And everything. There's a, there's a, my favorite illustration is about, about an hour outside of Nashville, there's a city called Bucksnort. Now, that's what it's called. Bucksnort. And I th- as far as I can tell, there's one gas station there, and it cracks me up because it's an hour outside of Nashville now, so, so I won't be crude, but connect this, and it's called the Golden Gallon. I'm just saying. So that as far as I know, all that's there is the Golden Gallon, whatever that gallon is. And so if Bucksnort has a destiny in Jesus, you can be sure that Abilene does. And so there are two, th- two 
kinds of people that are corrected by this. One kind of person who's corrected by it is the kind of person I was who doesn't like the city, doesn't think it's significant, sees everything after the flesh, and is ticked off that God put him here. That's where I was back then. The other kind is a person who's been here a lot, used to these kinds of cities, used to West Texas, and just living here without recognizing there's a higher destiny than what we see. That it's not about just living here and buying groceries and going to football games and hanging out. And You follow what I'm saying? That you can't just be a Christian, thank God I'm saved, I'm waiting for the second coming, in the meantime I'll live in Abilene because why not? And no, no, no. We're all supposed to drill down and tap the well of God's destiny and God's purpose for the city. See? So pray for the prosperity of the city in which you found yourself. And by the way, speaking to captives. Now, I didn't think I was captive. I was just mad that God hadn't given me, you know, like a London destiny or something. He gave me an Abilene destiny. I was an idiot. So, so the heroic principle is the idea that wherever you are, whether you're known or not, if you can live the life Jesus has called you to live and break through the barriers where you are. You can affect people in astonishing ways, even if you're never known. You break through to a new level of worship in a service. You intercede and break something new. You know, in your own family life, you become a hero because, you know, maybe you're the first generation to say, we are not going to divorce, bless God. I mean, you know, I don't know about you guys, in my family, you know, back to Adam, we have got divorces and everything. And, and no, in the name of Jesus. You follow what I mean? And, or it's angry people, or it's drunks, or whatever it is. You know, you just say no, in this generation it stops. See what happens? You break something off. You break something off for your ethnicity. You break something, you stop stuff that's unclean, and you release stuff that is clean. You're changing things in the invisible world. I have a theory that when we get to heaven, and God says it's now time to honor the heroes, they're all going to be little old praying grandmothers. Right? Right? who sat in their closet and wept for the city and nobody knew who they were. And the big buff pastors, and I'm not picking on anybody, and the nice suits and the cool cars, thank the Lord, may you all have great cars, that's not my point. But my point is, I'm going to go stand over there, some of those like, yeah. That, that's, that's not automatically making a hero. The hero is somebody who's broken through in the spirit. Right? You follow what I'm saying? This hero might be the mother, like a mother in Nashville I know, African-American mother, seven kids. She could barely read. She put all her kids through college. She said this ignorance thing, this lack of college thing and is going to stop with me. She launched her kids to something greater. She broke through a barrier. Now her kids have got like kids at Harvard, you know, and they're going to be running the world here pretty soon because she said no more. That's a heroic act. Do you see what I mean? I don't mean heroic in the sense that the newspaper notices. I mean it's heroic in the sense that she breaks a culture or a spirit, punctures out of it, and things rise. When I began to understand that, I began to understand that sitting in a small town, sitting in the the wilderness, sitting in the desert, you can break through things that affect things elsewhere. Now let me skip ahead just, just 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 for a moment and tell you that When I left Abilene and went to Nashville, where I pastored a very, very large church, um, I was astonished at the number of people who had been impacted in Abilene. It wasn't because of anything we'd done, because I just barely got my stuff together for a couple of years. God added some blessing, and then he moved me out before I messed it up, you know? But but what my point is that I would be in, in Abilene, 
I'd, I'd be sitting with a well-known country music person. They'd gone to ACU. They'd been in Abilene. They'd written their first song here. They'd attended a church. They'd weep and say, I got saved at some church in Abilene. I'd go, Abilene? Were you lost? I mean, I was still having kind of a, you know what I'm saying? You're going, uh, I, I do a lot in the military. Some of you know I've written books on soldiers, and I was embedded with the troops in Iraq and all that kind of So I'm sitting over there in Iraq now talking to a chopper pilot who's about to fly me somewhere. I'm just talking because I'm nervous, so I'm talking real fast, blah, 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 you know, just, just trying to talk to him. And I said, where are you from? He said, well, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm from South Texas, but my life really came together in Abilene. Abilene, you know. Abilene. I mean, I'm, I'm still, even though I've gone through the whole 10-year thing and had my encounter with God, I'm stunned. At one point, nine pastors of churches in Nashville, big ones, successful ones, effective ones, leading people to Jesus, all of them were either, either born again or trained or discipled by people in, in Abilene. And you know what I began to realize? I mean, I'm t- I'm t- I could go on forever. I met a guy at the Vatican. By the way, this, this, if anybody's from ACU, and, and I have a degree from ACU and love ACU, but if anybody's from ACU, there was, I met a Catholic priest at the Vatican. I said, where'd you do your undergraduate work? Abilene Christian. <laughs> that wasn't their point. I mean, they weren't heading for that, you know. But, <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, it was like it just came out of the woodwork wherever I was. You know what the Lord was doing? He was saying, you were looking with the eye and thinking it wasn't significant. But that's a watering hole. And Abilene's a place of refreshing. Uh, I think Abilene actually means meadow. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a place of refreshing. And it was, I was astonished at the lives that passed through this place. And even after I'd been here for 10 years and fallen in love with the place and, and understood what it was called to be and everything, I was still stunned. What were you doing there? You know, I would say almost with a little edge in my voice. And they'd look back a little defensively and go, I was born there? I mean, you know, they, and, and I'm just telling you, hundreds of people hundreds. Well, what do you got? 10,000 college students in the city between the three universities? Am I about right on that? I think AC is what, five, six, and the others are, you know, like 10 or 15. No, I'm joking. But, but I mean, you know, they got their, and so it's about 10,000 students, and what do we got? 20,000, 10, 15,000 a dais, and more than that? I mean, I, that's back in my day. You understand that a huge percentage of the city is, is rolling over, and you got them for three or four years, or an Air Force assignment period, or whatever, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's something special about Abilene. I'm not, I'm not just making that up. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to build anything or do anything. I'm trying to say that what can happen in a place like this is that you start dreaming big and you start thinking that uh, there's awesome stuff out there and what you don't do is drill down into the subterranean kind of, you know, I'm thinking of it like a pool of refreshing under the surface that is the, that is the, re- the calling and the destiny and the purpose of God he wants to do here. And you don't know in the spirit what kind of lines, what kind of power lines run to other places because there's, there, you can break through in the spirit and Abilene to new levels and bust stuff up and tear down racial hatred walls or, 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 or bust things through in the Holy Spirit or whatever it is. And, and, it, and it affects something in Abilene. Albuquerque or affects something in London. You know what I'm saying? We don't know what's going on in the invisible, but there's something about Abilene that is more than cattle and schools and trains and Prini Ranch barbecue. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, you follow what I'm saying? I'm just saying. So there's something more. And I didn't fully understand that God, in the same way that God has hero lives, that, that break through in the spirit and war through some things. You follow what I'm saying. 
Some of them we know, some of them we don't. We know Mother Teresa was a hero. We know Dr. King was a hero. We know that Billy Graham was a hero. Most of them we'll never know. Because their grandma's praying in the, you know, how many of you are here because of praying grandma somewhere back in your family line? Come on, look at that. I mean, that's the, or praying grandfather. How many of you are here because, you know, some, some father or grandmother, you know, moved you out of the poverty neighborhood or, just, or, or slapped you around and said, you are not going to talk that way or whatever it was and set a standard and broke through and, and determined that things were going to be different. That's what heroes do. And if that's true of human beings then there's a heroic calling in every city and there's also a heroic calling for every city. For some reason, Jesus made Abilene. Now, there's some reason he made everything else, but we're here to be midwives of his purposes. We're here to help give birth to what he does. And what I want to say to you, because I'm talking to to, to born-again believers in this room, what I want to say to you is, That does not come about just because we go to church or just because we tithe or just because we read our Bibles. You have to declare yourself. You have to say, I am here, and I want to do that thing. And there's one other thing you've got to do, and I want to talk about it for for a few minutes, and I'll, I'll kind of circle around this. You have to embrace the good and what God has called the city to do, and you've got to pray and ask for revelation of what the Lord is doing in the city and be part of it and give birth to it and cheer it on. And, you know, it's like you're, I don't know if you've ever seen a horse or a calf be born, you know, pulling on this thing, you know, yanking on this foot, trying to get this calf born. Well, that's what a destiny is like. You've got to pull on prayer, pull on it in prayer, and, and you've got you to cry out, you know, and cry out to God and live a righteous life and do the things you're called to do. And so you've you got to pull on the positive things, but the other thing is you've got to resist the negative. You can't give birth to God's purposes for a city and be all shaped by the negative of the city. So you gotta, you got to back off the unclean while you encourage and pray for the birth of the righteous d- destiny that God has. And you got to do all that while committing yourself that as long as God has you in that place, you're going to live as a change agent in that place. Now, let's go to First Chronicles. chapter 4. Some of you remember some time ago when there was a book called The Prayer of Jabez. And um, it was in Nashville, you know, we've got uh, the, the Prayer of Jabez really was a kind of a freak in Christian publishing. Um, it's kind of like the achy, breaky heart of Christian publishing. You guys remember achy, breaky heart? If you live in Nashville, every songwriter in Nashville is mad about achy, breaky heart because they write these amazing songs, you know, these complex harmonies and stuff like that. And here comes What's-His-Face with achy, breaky heart. And it's one of the biggest selling songs in the history of country music. And they hate him. And so... Uh, and I, I came close to that. I wrote a book called The Faith of George W. Bush, and it sold a million six. Now, that's you know, massive. But it, it had the good fortune to come out the same year as Purpose Driven Life, which has sold 37 million copies. I hate Rick Warren. No, I don't. <laughs> I told his agent with Rick Warren sitting there that he was either a man of God or the Antichrist. Um, so I sold one seven in a year that one of the biggest Christian books in the world was written. So but I still love Rick. We hang. All right, First Chronicles chapter 4. The reason I say that is I'm actually going to try to preach from the verse that Jabez's prayer was about, even though it's got to be one of the most preached on verses in the history of the world. So let me read for, to you from First Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 9. This is about Jabez. And Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. 
And Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Now, to understand what's going on in the Jabez story, you've got to understand uh, about Jabez's mother. That's the whole key here. Jabez's mother is the kind of woman who names her kids after her disappointment with life. Because Jabez means pain. And so Jabez's mom named him pain because she had pain given birth to him. So she's that kind of woman. And every time, you know, again, I got raised with, with Jews a little bit, a little bit Jewish mothering going on here. Um, because every time that Jabez is supposed to clean his room, you know, uh, his mom says, Jabez, and Jabez is reminded that his name means pain. And then when he's a little disobedient, she goes, that's okay, you don't have to obey. I mean, you did cause me pain when you were born, but that's all right. You just go right ahead. And it's all that kind of manipulation. Well, the Bible says that, she, that he had brothers. Jabez had brothers. So who knows? I mean, I mean, I, from a Native American background, I've got, you know, we tend to name people based on what's happening in nature the day they're born. I've got uncles called Rabbit Run and, you know, Deer Sprint and stuff like that. I've got all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, Eagle Spit and what have you. And, um, and so J- who knows? Maybe Jabez had a brother, you know, if she's going to name him pain because she had pain in the hospital giving birth to him, maybe, maybe he's got a brother named Bedpan Too Cold or, you know, a Bill Too Big or doctor ugly or whatever who knows what who knows what she's got it got going there but but anyway she's the kind of woman who looks backward and remembers her pain she's the kind of woman who builds monuments to her disappointments with life in the souls of her children we know people like that you know how to ha- you can have a hamburger with somebody and they dump more negative on you in five minutes than you've had all week hurt people hurt people tainted people taint people and so so anyway, well, what's interesting is that something happens there uh, between the verses. I mean, look at this. The first part of the whole thing describes that, that Jabez is living in this house of this woman who's bitter and angry with life and doesn't think anything about cursing her children as a result. The second verse, suddenly, look what he says in verse 10. And Jabez cried out to the God of Israel and said, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory and let your hand be with me. For, 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 uh, and let your hand be with me. Uh, keep me from pain so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Now, what I want to know is what happened to Jabez. The first verse is descript- describing Jabez's family life in this house with this bitter woman who was always talking about her pain or disappointment with her life. And you know what it's like to be around a person like this. It just sucks the color out of the world, doesn't it? It just makes everything sad and depressed when people rehearse their bitterness and their disappointment with life. And so Jabez is living this postage stamp experience, a small, meager, mean, backward-looking, bitter, let's rehearse our disappointments with life kind of thing. And then between verse 9 and verse 10, something happens. And the next thing we know, he's standing up before God and he's saying, I ask you, Lord, to free me from the curse of my name. Break the spirit of smallness and bitterness. Enlarge me and be with me. Wow. What happened? What happened? Because most people I know who are small and bitter stay small and bitter their whole lives. Well, I'm going to tell you what I'm guessing. We don't know for sure. But I have a, I have a guess. 
And here's my guess. If you look back earlier at the beginning of that chapter 4 in First Chronicles and you're using God's version of the Bible, the NIV, you will see that it says that this is a chronology of the tribe of Judah. Chronology of the tribe of Judah. Now, in the ancient world, in the evenings, it was common for the people to go out uh, in the evenings and they'd sit around the fires in the villages, uh, according to tribe, and the priests and the wise men and the poets would recount the stories of the tribe's history tell about the great heroes, tell about the great warriors, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, and so, you know, Jabez, we can tell from the Hebrew, he's about 13. Okay, he's young. And, uh, and I think that one night Jabez goes out and he finishes the distance and the, the dishes and he wants to get away from this woman who's, you know, he's just, you know, 13, you're having problems with your mom no matter who she is, but especially this woman. And so she, uh, he goes out and he sits with the tribal leaders and and, you know, I think, I can just picture, I, in my spiritual imagination, I can just picture him sitting between a couple of elders, a couple of big old warrior kind of guys, listening to what's being told. And at some point, Jabez would have heard the founding blessing of the tribe of Judah. At some point. Somebody had to recite it. As a matter of fact, if he is 13, he would have been memorizing it for his bar mitzvah. Okay? His coming of age thing. And so at some point, in his life, in his young life, he heard these words. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, not, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he c- comes to him to whom it belongs and the obedience of nations will be his. And it goes on and on and on. And I want to suggest to you that at some point in Jabez's life between verse 9 and verse 10, something goes off in his soul. And he realizes that he has a destiny greater than how his mother has programmed him. He realizes that he's not called to bitterness. He's not called to sit at the dinner table and look back and rehearse all the negative and all the pain and all his disappointments with life. He realizes he's a son in the house. He realizes that he, is, he belongs to the tribe of Judah and he is by faith belonging to a people who are lion-like and who will rule nations and who will have awesome things going off in their life. You follow what I'm saying? And I think at some point he gets a revelation that he has a destiny by faith that he does not have by, birth, by virtue of his natural birth. That there's something more he's called to. And I think at that point, I think at some point he has what I call a Jabez moment. And he leans back and he says, Lord God, if that's who I am by faith, then enlarge me. Make me equal to that calling and that destiny. Break the curse of pain. When he said, free me from pain, it's not what the Hebrew actually says. I'm sorry I read Hebrew. I kind of criticize some of the translations. It doesn't mean free me from pain. It says, break that which is induced by my name, which is a negative. That's the literal Hebrew. Now you know why they put it in different words, because it's too clumsy. But the point is, my name is having an effect on me. Free me from that effect. In other words, what? In English, break the curse. Break the curse. And now, baby, enlarge me. I have been living in a matchbox with this woman. I have been crammed together in a church, and not a church, in a building so small, in a house, a spirit that's so suffocating. Free me from that stuff. Stretch forth and enlarge me. 13-year-old Jabez is saying, enlarge me, baby. I'm ready to live. I want to live large. And you go back to the beginning of the verse, and it says, and, and Jabez was more honorable than his brothers and his sisters. Why? Because 
the indication is none of the rest of them got free. But Jabez knew who he was by faith and said, free me, baby. Now, what you've got to do is take some theology from the Lion King. Because the best theology in the world is in Disney movies. Come on, can I get an amen? <laughs> Unless it's Braveheart, which you can only watch part of. So what you've got to do is remember who you are. Remember that? Remember who you are. You would do that better. Black man does that better, doesn't he? Come on. So, but I was doing my best, you know, what, what's his name on the, James Earl Jones, the best CNN voice. Yeah, they got Michael Douglas doing the voice for ABC, and it's kind of girly. So I don't, I'm just, I'm wanting the James Earl Jones thing. Remember who you are. You see, even if you were born and raised in Abilene, you don't just live life as an Abilinian who loves Jesus. You've got to remember who you are. You are part of the people of God who are here to take the land. And through prayer and intercession and righteous living, you, you are giving birth to God's purposes. You are drilling down into that destiny that is always percolating beneath the surface. And you read, I, you know, I read a lot of natural history. I understand, you know, there were two train tracks that intersected and a bunch of guys said, probably ought to build a town. And they bought, brought in some cows and they put some stuff up and they sent to wherever trees live because it's not here. And they got some logs and they built themselves some cabins. You understand what I'm saying? And they brought folks in and they murdered a whole bunch of Indians, but I won't talk about that right now. I've forgiven you. And then, and then, you know, and a town grew up. Thank the Lord. And they named it after a biblical thing. Okay, awesome. And I know there's negative history and there's other stuff, but, but it's here. But all of that natural happenings and where do we get water and are we pumping oil and what animal do we kill for the barbecue and all that kind of stuff is secondary to the fact that in eternity, Jesus said, I want a town there to fulfill my purpose because all things, all things were created for him and by him. And see, sometimes it might be good to have an, a, a Yankee from out of town come and remind those of you who have been here a long time. It's an awesome city, but it's not meant to be just this. I don't, I'm not talking about restaurants and buildings and natural. I'm talking about there's a destiny that's got to be fulfilled. And the people of God are supposed to live their lives and be devoted to churches and all the stuff that you're doing. But part of every Christian's life in every community in the world, even if they're the only Christian there, is that they're crying out, for the reason that that physical space was created for Jesus. Do you see what I mean? Now, Jabez got enlarged not only by getting a vision of what he could be, but by pushing back on what had shrunk him and embittered him and made him small. So if you're going to stand, here, here, here are the things that, that, that you've got to do, and I want, I want you to hear this. The first thing that you've got to do is declare yourself. This is what I didn't do. You need to decide. And by the way, I'm not, this is, I'm not, I don't work for the Chamber of Commerce. I'm not trying to get you signed up for the rest of your life for Abilene, Texas. You'll leave eventually. You'll leave eventually. For some of you, you're looking at me like, really? Yeah, you'll leave eventually. I'm only talking about while you're here. Just while you're here. Don't live a light and transitory life. Do you follow what I'm saying? Don't live a life that's not of consequence. Don't leave and, and have there be no hole or no, no fruit that you've left behind, no impact. Some of you are here for the rest of your life. Some of you are here for about two minutes. Some of you are here for like six years or ten years. Or some of you just started college. You'll be here for four years or maybe five if you meet a girl or whatever it is, you know. But the point is that while you're here, live on the land 
stake your claim, fulfill your personal destiny in the land, and take hold of the destiny of the city. Do you follow what I'm saying? Just while you're here. Don't spend seven years griping. Let have God have to smack you around like I did, and then you got about two and a half years of real fruitfulness. And what happened in that last two and a half years was awesome. Awesome. Made me realize what 10 years could have done. You follow what I mean? So that's the first thing you have to do. You've got to declare yourself. And I want you to think about this. You have no authority in a place if you're living with one foot out the door. And that's what I was always doing. About every two weeks, I'd get in my little car, and I'd drive to Dallas just to breathe big city air. I'd go to Neiman Marcus. I have no idea why I couldn't afford a thing there, but I'd go to Neiman Marcus. I just wanted to be in a big city. I'd go walk around Dealey Plaza and remember some history. You know, it's where Kennedy was shot, of course. I'd eat a hamburger. I'd come back, and I'd feel like I'd gotten an injection. It was just stupid. It was just stupid. But I had one foot in Dallas or anywhere east, heading back to Germany, really, I think is what I was trying to do. And I was here only lightly, and everybody knew it. You know the difference between somebody who's in love with the city and praying for the city and blessing the city and isn't it awesome in the city and here we are in the city and we're going to bless this place and bless the Lord. Let's go, let's go see if we can pray for the mayor. And let's go down there, and I, mean, I did, eventually when I got my head right, and let's go see if we can, let's go talk, talk, talk to the high school principals and see if they need, y'all need anything, we'll do something for you. What would you like for us to do? And just bless and honor them and, and just celebrate people. And there was a big fire when I was here and the firemen were awesome and I didn't see any ceremony happening. So we had the ceremony for the firemen. You follow what I'm saying? And you're just in love with the city. That's what came after. And that's what we're called to do, is love this. There's a difference between that person and the guy who's kind of, okay, here we are in Abilene. All right, what's next? You know, kind of thing. And not, not living, declaring yourself. Uh, again, I want to just say, because I think this is important, I'm only talking about as long as you're supposed to be here. You follow what I mean? I mean, some of you work for companies, and they'll rotate you out eventually. For all I know, some of you could be military, and they'll rotate you out eventually. I understand that. But while you're where you are, Live a life of fruit. Don't put out vines. Put down roots and make a difference. Number two, and I've already quoted the verse, bless the city. Repent tonight of anything negative you've said about this city. I had nine years of repenting probably at that time. You know what I mean? I had, I had, I mean, I won't even tell you. And I'll tell you the other thing too, is that if you want to be a leader, if you're called to be a leader, I'll tell you what, where the, the, the power of leadership does not come from being cool and good-looking and knowing some jokes. The power of leadership comes from loving and caring and hungering to give birth to something more. And if, if you're here and you're hacked off and you're telling jokes about the city like I did, you don't love this place, like whatever, you know, you will never inspire people. You will never care for people. You will never make a difference. I'm watch, I, 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 I chaplain some guys in the NFL, and, and, and it's, I'll tell you what, there may be a coach or there may be a quarterback, but the guy who is the real leader on the team, it's the guy who loves that team, wants victory, cares about the people, checking on their wives, and what, are you okay, and how's that ankle? And, now, you can do this, man. We can beat these guys. I know we're lower in the rankings, but we can beat these guys because we're awesome. And you know, the quarterback can be over there, the coaches can be over there, and the owner can be up there. But I'll tell you, the leader is the guy who's got the greatest love and passion for the team. And that's who's going to leave and change the city. And then finally, you've got you've to push back on the forces that try to shrink you. There's some great stuff about, about Abilene. And you've got to fall in love with that and pray for it. And like I say, pull on, pull on that in the spirit. Pull on that in prayer like you're giving birth to a calf. 
But, but there's some stuff in, in, in the culture of Abilene that you've got you to gotta be careful about. There's kind of an island mentality, and there's kind of, a, kind of a little bit of resistance to strangers. You know what I'm talking about. You know, a little bit like we're here, and, you know, if you're outside, that kind of thing. And, you know, there's some stuff that's not. I'm not, I'm not coming from the outside to tell you that. I'm just, you know, there's great, great stuff, and then there's some not great stuff. And, and there's kind of a, there's some stuff, you know, where you, people live in close to their jobs and close to the land and never kind of lift their eyes up to see the big picture of what God's doing in the earth and how we're connected to it. You follow what I mean? And, and when, I, when I was living in Abilene, I felt like I was on the back 40 of God's kingdom, man. There was nothing important happening here. I mean, I might get one or two people saved, but who really cares about that? I mean, this is, I wasn't thinking it out loud, but that's kind of the way it was. And then suddenly when I lifted my eyes, we began to pray and intercede. And, and then we began to build some churches in Mexico because it was close. And then suddenly we started sending teams over here. And then we had major leaders come here and say, would you partner with us for this? And pretty soon we were connected to the kingdom of God. But we had to plant ourselves first and resist the smallness that tried to settle in our souls the town may not be that big but i'm not worried about the physical smallness i'm worried about the smallness that settles in your soul you follow what i'm saying the smallness that settles in your soul the smallness that makes you about just living until you can retire until you can die the smallness that makes you about how, what you eat and where you sorry rich what you eat and where you live and 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 just having a job and just being here in your natural physical life you know you ask most americans and i'll finish here in a minute but you ask most americans what they want in life and the, here's what the surveys say they want someone to love them they want shelter they want food and water, and they want a little bit of play. Okay? That's a dog's life. That's the canine version of destiny. You follow what I'm saying? That is, that's what a dog wants. You've got eternity in your heart. You to, if you're born again, you've got the Spirit of God inside of you. You're not meant for a dog's life. We get you shelter and water and scratch your head for heaven, then we'll throw you a ball. That's not what you're living for. You're living to make a difference and have Jesus say, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. So I want you to ask God to give you a love for your city. I want you not to be shaped by it. I want you to shape it. I want this church, and I know it's got a heritage of that thing. You know, I, I know that you've had a, a pastors in the past. And I know Kevin York and these guys. And they all came blessed. Every generation has got to make its contribution. I understand that this is not a new thought to you. But I just, as I've been in the city just today and praying up in the hotel room, the city's pregnant with something. You've seen, you know this better than I do, right? You guys have been here, you've been praying. I'm, I'm, I'm coming from the outside to confirm, not tell you new stuff. The city's pregnant with something. There's something happening here, you know? There's something happening here, something good happening. It's awesome. You've got, you got restaurants that tell me the kingdom of God is on the way. You follow on? So when you get a P.F. Chang's, that's when I'll know. <laughs> nah, I'm just playing. I can see the signs. I can feel it in the pastors I talk to. I can... I can sense it in the city. You can too. God wants to do something here. And a cynic will say, what does God want to do three hours from the biggest city? You know what I'm saying? I mean, what, you know, but that's the whole issue. I met hundreds of people around the world impacted in Abilene, Texas. And I couldn't have seen it. And God wouldn't have, wouldn't have opened my eyes to it until I'd first said, I, I am here for the rest of my life if I have to be. And I want you to know that I had not led anybody to Jesus in my life uh, in Abilene until the Sunday after I had this tearful wrestling time with God. And I said, I'll st I will stay here until I die. Just please use me. I had just gotten desperate for some kind of spiritual fruit. And the next Sunday, a handful of people got saved for the first time. 
and I had nothing to do with it. They were visitors. They walked in. They were visiting area for a rodeo or something. I mean, sure enough, God was sending me cowboys. And, you know, and they got saved. Fruit doesn't happen till you love and you care and you plant yourself. May I pray for you about this? Father, I thank you for the 10 years that I had here back in 81 to 91 to make a, to make a difference and serve you. And I did it badly, Lord. I, you don't need me to tell you that. I did it badly. I pray the folks in this room and those listening by tape or CD or podcast or however this thing's going to be used in a recording, I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you will cause us to have our Jabez moment about Abilene. That we will no longer be shaped by a smallness or a dim vision or a kind of an island kind of mentality, kind of an isolated mentality, insider, outsider kind of thing, but we'll be big hearted. We'll be able to bless people. We'll be able to give. We'll be able to be generous. We'll be able to serve your purposes and give birth through prayer and generosity and ministry to God's purposes here. I pray, Father God, that you will break our hearts with love for this city, even if we're called to leave it, even if we go on somewhere else for college or go go elsewhere for other things in our lives. Give us a love for the city and let us speak blessing over the city until the day we die. I pray, Lord, with these believers that Abilene, Texas, will fulfill the purpose for which Jesus created her. I pray you'll station righteous watchmen on the walls and guardians and intercessors and prophets and pastors and teachers and uh, anointed business people and anointed uh, teachers and artists and media people and, and, and military people, and every kind of folk here, Lord, who, who, have, who, who can glimpse what you're trying to do. And I pray, Father God, that if there's any disillusionment in anybody's heart, if there's any, sm- any smallness, any nagging sense that somehow we've been left out, that we're some kind of dark spot on the bottom of the small toe of the body of Christ, that you'll just break that whole lie and give us a sense of the great destiny to which we're called. Make us heroes in a heroic city. This is our prayer, Father. In Jesus' name, and everyone together said, amen.